Montebello Church Sermons. Good morning. I have the privilege of reading our scripture passage for uh, the message this morning, but I'd like you all to stand as, as we do it, and I'd like us all to uh, read it together. It's uh, just three verses, but it's packed with a lot of stuff, and if you just read right through real fast, you're going to miss a lot. So uh, let's go ahead and read together. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, to maintain the unity of peace. Thank you. You may be seated. I am, excuse me, I am excited to be here this morning. I'm excited to see your beautiful, beautiful faces. It's excited to, uh, it's just, it's great. Um, Some of you don't, I can't see your faces. Uh, You know, that's okay. That's okay. I, I love seeing your presence. It's okay if you are here and I can't see your face. It's okay if you are here and I can see your face. Because regardless of if you are a face exposer or a non-face exposer, you are beautiful children of a loving, caring God. Amen? Amen. At the end of the day, we are not seen as face exposers or face hiders. We are seen as children of God. And so I am excited Uh, this morning to just uh, be able to walk with you through Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. I just want to take a quick preface, okay? You might be here for the first time, and you might be asking yourself, who is this guy up front? And why why is he talking to me? My name's Dave. If you don't know, uh, Dave All, I am uh, a member of Montevilla Baptist, and uh, I, with a number of uh, other men, have been asked to preach through the book of Ephesians. And we, are, we have made it to chapter 4. And the great thing about the book of Ephesians is that it's almost perfectly split up into uh, what I like to refer to as form and function of the church. The first three chapters of Ephesians talk to us about who we are and what we have in Jesus. We have every spiritual blessing under heaven. We, uh, we have been adopted as children, sons of God. And because of that, we, everyone is a participant in the inheritance of God. We have been united together in Christ. There is not a split between factions, between ethnicity, between um, even to an extent uh, belief systems. If we follow Jesus, if we believe Jesus, we are one in Jesus. That's what we are called to. 
And because of that, we, we hold fast to the fact that we are saved by grace and we are being built up together into the temple of God. That's chapters 1 through 3. Chapters 4 through 6 kind of give us the nuts and bolts of how that happens. If you know who you are in Jesus, how does that work itself out in your life, in the lives of the church, in uh, the experience of the church? And so we come to Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, and there are four questions that I want us to ask about this passage. We've, we've read it through twice. Deb's read it. Kevin read it. It's actually three times. You read it. So I want us to dig down, drill down, and understand what it is that Jesus is calling us to do in this passage. And so there's four questions I want us to ask. What is our calling as the body of Christ? What is true humility? And ultimately, what, why do we need patience and why do we need to be bearing with one another in love? And lastly, why is it so important that we may maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? That's exceptionally important. But let's start with question one. What is our calling as a body of believers? And I want to emphasize that it's not what is my calling. It is what Paul is asking, is asking us to understand what is our calling as the church. In fact, my calling needs to be in submission to our calling. If God has called me to preach, or if God has called you to serve, or to help children, or to visit the homeless, or to uh, make delicious food that we might partake in it, Whatever that calling is, I like that one the best. <laughs> that calling needs to be subservient to the calling of us as a body of believers. What is that calling? What is our calling as a church? Well, We've been given blessings. We've been given an inheritance. We've been brought together and unified. We've been, uh, we've been given those things and we have become those things in order, it says, that we might become the temple of God. In fact, Ephesians 2, 18 through 22 summarizes it best when it says, For through him we have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord, in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are the temple of God. Not this building. 
not this denomination. The people of God are the temple of God. The temple of God was the place where people came to meet God, to be forgiven, to receive his blessing, to hear his word, to receive his guidance, to understand who he is. And so the call then for the church of God is to reveal to the world the goodness, the character, the blessing, the love of God who dwells in us through the Spirit. Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay. Excellent. That's fantastic. Okay. That, that makes my job easier. So in light of that, Let's table that for a second and let's come back to the second question. The second question is this. What then is true humility and why is it so important to our calling? Now, I kind of did some quick study on the actual word humility. And the dictionary defines it as having or showing a modest or low estimate of one's own importance. So thinking less of yourself. I think they got it half right, but I don't think they got the definition all right. And the reason I say that is because I can sit here and I can say, man, I am a terrible person, but at least I'm not Alan Cook. If I can say that, is that truly humility? Sorry. Sorry, Alan, you are a great, great and mighty man. It's simply an example. Don't read into it, people. Okay? If I do that, I am actually showing pride. Because while maybe I think less of myself, I've still pushed someone below me. And that's pride. Thinking of yourself better than others. What humility really is, is not just understanding the soberness of your life situation, but elevating the people around you. So it's not just saying, I'm bad. Frankly, humility isn't saying I'm bad. It's having an accurate understanding of who you are. I might be a great businessman. I might be a great teacher. I might be a great pastor. I might be uh, a great athlete. I might be all of those things, but you know what I'm not? I'm not God. I'm not perfect. I'm a sinner saved by grace. And so what does that stuff matter? It doesn't ma matter except that I am a sinner saved by grace. And I'm brought into his kingdom, not because I earned it, but because he saved me. And I get to participate in his glorious riches only because he loves me. That's what that means. But then in addition to that, the fulfillment of the definition of humility is that you are not just having an understanding of who you are, but you are elevating others. 
Look at Alan Cook. Look at that guy. <laughs> that guy can take being made fun of. That guy can take having his, his, his beautiful name be spurched publicly. He, he can handle all of that. He is truly a great, great man. Okay? Agreed. Yeah, see, we all agree. Man. Alan, do not let it go to your head. Okay? Please. We are a people of God, and in order to fulfill our calling, we have to understand who we are, but then we also have to be willing and excited to elevate other people, building them up, meeting their needs. That is a true expression of humility. But it takes patience, doesn't it? And this is why patience is so important. Patience is the pillar that humility is built on. Let me give you an example. When I was in my 20s, I remember standing in front of the mirror, (laughs) brushing my beautiful locks and standing there and just saying, man, Dave, you truly are humble. Mm. You're the epitome of humility. And then I got married. And I realized, oh, I have some growing to do. I have to figure out how to not just love myself, but how I have to figure out how to love this beautiful woman, Kate, just in case. My wife's Kate, and she is beautiful. Okay? I want to make sure that I'm transparent and honest when I'm preaching before you. And... I remember the point where, you know, you had, to, you had to learn to work with one another and you had to learn that, oh, being married isn't all about me. Oh, who would have thought? Wow. And then, you know, you start realizing, okay, God's doing some hum- humility work in my life. And you're like, oh, okay, maybe I arrived. And then I had children. And nothing humbles you better than when you're tossing your kid up in the air and they barf in your mouth. And so you, you grow in that and you learn what it is to take care of, of, of children and to help grow them and to help to teach them and to help, uh, you know, bring them into adulthood. And, and you get excited about that and you get to a place where you're like, oh man, maybe... Maybe I'm here. Maybe I made it. And then you have two daughters who enter adolescence. And you realize, oh, I'm not there yet. There's a lot I got to learn. Humility is that process. And patience is that conduit that leads us toward humility. It's that active ingredient that challenges us 
to think less of ourselves and more of others. And it is so important. I am 47 years old, and I cannot tell you with honesty that I am a patient person. I am not. It is a terrible stronghold in my life. And yet I know as I draw closer to God, it is almost a litmus test of where my relationship with God is. For if I am more patient, if I am more tolerant of my family and my friends, and heaven forbid, the people on the freeway, I realize God's doing some work. God's drawn me closer to him. It's so crucial to who we are as God's temple. So we've talked about our call. We've talked about the need for humility. We've talked about the need for patience. I want us to talk about one of the most important parts Maybe the hardest part, and I want to ask the question, why is it important for us to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? That is important. How do we maintain the unity of who we are as the temple of God in the bond of peace? Before we can even answer that, we have to understand what the definition of peace is. Paul uses the Greek word, I'm going to butcher this word, it's like uh, Arrhenius or something like that. I didn't learn to speak Greek, I just know how to look up Greek words. But it alludes to this kind of harmonious tranquility. Um, I, I picture... Uh, you know, when I, was, when I was in junior high, I uh, went backpacking up into the Steens Mountains with my, my uncle and my cousins, and I remember one morning coming out of our tent, and I, was, I got up early, and I got out there, and we were camped in front of a lake, and it was just, you couldn't hear anything. The sun was just coming up, and you're like, you were just struck with the awe of where you were at. You're like, this is amazing. And everything was at peace. It was quiet. And then some hippie on the other side of the lake started blowing a flute and ruined it all. But I still can hold on to that, you know, 30 seconds of memory and think this is what Paul is talking about. There's this tranquil peace that the church of God is supposed to exhibit that is awe-inspiring. It's not that we walk around like Buddhist monks and we don't stay anything. No, it's like everything is as it should be. And this is something that Paul says. He doesn't say tolerate the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He says be eager to maintain it. He says two things. Be eager, 
This is something that we as a body of believers should be excited about. And then he says, eager to maintain, which he says in that statement, he makes it known that this is not something that can be, it doesn't just exist on its own. It has to be worked at. I had a 1990 Honda Accord that I would drive, I used to preach down in Eugene and I would, every Sunday I would drive down to Eugene and I would preach there and it's a, it's a two hour drive. And so for it to function properly, we needed to make sure that the oil was changed, that the spark plugs were changed, that it was tuned up and ready to go, that the tires weren't bald, all of those things in order for me to make it down to Eugene every Sunday. It took a little bit of work. But the great thing about 1990 Honda Accords is if you take care of them, they literally last forever. By the time we didn't even, I couldn't sell that car. I had to give it away. But at the end of it, it was running like a top. The suspension wasn't great. but it had over 330,000 miles on it. it. It lasted because it was maintained. And so when Paul says, be eager to maintain, he's painting a portrait of what can happen and he's giving us a path to get there. And so how do we get this tranquil harmony? How do we get this functional, interactive harmony between a bunch of broken people in the Spirit through Christ, which he has commanded us to do? How do we get it? It depends on what you perceive peace to be. Not what it's defined, but what you perceive it to be. When we talk about peace, are you someone, I, I'm going to use this analogy, it's going to break down at the end, but, uh, but I'm going to use it anyway. I, I like to think of um, defining peace in two ways. There is, uh, there is, there's those who are peacekeepers, and think about like White Earp. White Earp was a lawman in the West, and he was tasked with keeping the peace, you know, making sure drunk Jerry doesn't go and, and uh, you know, get drunk and pass out and, and uh, wake up in, you know, Farmer Bill's uh, pig trough. You know, he's, he, he's going around, he's making sure people aren't robbing, he's making sure people aren't cheating at cards, he's making sure, you know, uh, you know people aren't just being lawless on the street. If somebody is angry at somebody else, he's saying, okay, you guys go to your separate homes. I don't want to see uh, you or hear you. He is a peacekeeper. But when things got really rough, Wyatt Earp had a special gun that he would pull out. It was called the peacemaker. <laughs> and if conflict couldn't be resolved, the peacemaker resolved the conflict. Now, 
I hate to associate the church with the peacemaker, but really the church is called to be a peacemaker before it is called to be a peacekeeper. The world wants to cover all animosity, all hate, all hurt, all bitterness, as long as we agree. That's not the way of Jesus. Jesus came in and said, Ooh, you guys are sinners. We need to remove this. I will take it. We need to remove this. I will take it. And you need to be made new. Jesus was a peacemaker. He removed the sin in order to bring unity and peace. And that's what the body of Christ is called to. Many of us might know that. Maybe many of us have heard this for the first time. But we've lived as peacekeepers where there's hurt and there's bitterness in our midst and rather than deal with it, we cover it. We put Billy on one end of the auditorium and Susie on the other end of the auditorium and as long as they don't meet, we're at peace. But we know how that ends up. Billy's over here bitter, Susie's over here bitter, and then they start talking. And they're like, I can't believe Susie did this to me. I can't believe I am so hurt and I am so broken. Don't you agree with me? And then they start gathering little disciples. And now there's factions, and there's Billy's faction, and there's Susie's faction. And now you have this underlying simmering of tension. Where are you in Billy's camp or are you in Susie's camp? Whose side are you on? And things look good on the surface, but underneath, it is a bubbling cauldron of bitterness, hurt, carrying other offenses, guilt, shame, whatnot. And so you look on the surface... And it may look peaceful, but underneath, it's chaos. It's like if I came out of my tent as a junior hire and surveyed this beautiful lake and without realizing that somebody had dumped two tons of nuclear waste at the bottom of it. It looks peaceful, but underneath, the fish are dying. And don't drink that water. That's the difference between being a peacekeeper and a peacemaker. And the church is called to be peacemakers. That means rather than taking sides with Billy and Susie, we seek reconciliation. We seek, we go and we say, okay. I understand that you have been hurt. 
what can we do to make this right? What can we do to seek forgiveness and restoration to where you two can go and pray together, to where you two can go and eat communion together, guilt-free, to where you can pray for one another, to where you can minister together? What does that look like? I don't know what it looks like, but I know you that's, I can tell you that that is what we are called to do. And more importantly, that's what Paul says we should be eager to do, is to be makers of peace. Think about that. We've been tasked with the goal of being makers of peace. God has saved us, redeemed us, transformed us, indwells in us so that we can exhibit and exert his peace. And it begins with us. That's magical and hard and terrifying. How does that happen? I'm glad you asked. It takes humility. It takes humility. Is there offense, an offense that you are holding? Sorry, my, my mouth is running dry. I just want to let you know, on your side is like the oasis of, you know, on this side of the barrier, it's dry and arid, so I'm having a difficult time speaking. On your side, it's, it's, it's a beautiful oasis. I wish I was there. In order for us to be peacemakers, it takes humility. Are you holding an offense towards someone else? whether they hurt you legitimately or not. Maybe it's just something that they believe. Maybe it's just something that they've said, but maybe you are holding an offense. Are you unwilling to forgive that person? Maybe because you need to see justice before you can give forgiveness. We are called to first bring those hurts before our Lord, lay them down, and say, God, I am hurt. I am broken. I don't feel like I can forgive this person. They have hurt me. God, please help take this away. That's first and foremost. I kind of encourage you today, I hate to make this applicable, but we're supposed to be eager about this. I would encourage you to go and seek forgiveness from those who you have held bitterness towards. Um, Some of you know my story. Uh, Some of you don't know my story, but was it like 20 years ago? Literally 20 years ago, 
I was the youth pastor here. Can you believe that? What were we thinking? Our children are the future, people. I was the youth pastor here. I was in over my head. I lasted two years, and then I had a nervous breakdown, and I was out of here. And I can tell you for a fact, I was bitter. I demanded justice. I was hurt and broken, and I held on to that. I read, you know, when God says to forgive, I read that, and I was like, yeah, yeah, when pigs fly, that's not happening. And after enough time passed, God got a hold of my heart. And he said, man, you, you want to follow me, Dave? You have to forgive. You are bitter. You are broken. And so, of course, I said, okay, God, I forgive everybody. God was like, no, you're saying that, but I'm not really feeling that. You need to go talk to those people. I'm like, you mean the people who hurt me, who broke me? Yeah. And you need to ask for their forgiveness because you've been holding bitterness toward them. Long story short, that was a tough conversation. Okay. But I went and I started to, one by one, check off my list. Who am I bitter towards? Who do I feel like has hurt me? And I went to them, and I did not expect them to say or do anything. I just went them, went to them out of obedience, and I just said, hey, I need you to know this. I have been bitter toward you and I need to seek your forgiveness and I am sorry for that and you know what's humbling going and talking to people and telling them that you're wrong and you need to seek their forgiveness that teaches you humility real quick and so I went and I got to tell you this I came here as a youth pastor, and I always felt at arm's length. I was afraid of how I would be perceived. I was afraid of stuff that might go wrong. I was afraid of uh, losing faith. I was, afraid, I was afraid of all these things, and so I kept you at arm's length until God called me to confess and to repent to you, and the moment... I was able to confess and to repent my broken heart to you. Do you know what happened? Man, Montevilla, for the first time ever, felt like home. Because I was in the body of believers, I received the forgiveness. My bitterness had gone away, and it was like tranquil harmony. Oh, it was so awesome, you guys. 
I want to share that just because if you're holding bitterness, I want to tell you the bitterness that you hold toward people is nothing compared to the joy that you receive when you are forgiven and brought back into a reconciled relationship through Jesus. It doesn't compare. It's like you're touching heaven. You want to have a body of believers who are peacemakers? It starts with your own heart. And it starts with going and confessing and forgiving and restoring. That also takes patience. Who would have thought? How many of us see other people falling into the same bad habits, making the same mistakes over and over again, and we get exasperated by that? I don't know. How many of you here are parents? It happens a lot. That's part of the process of learning and growing, is overcoming those things. And so you have to ask yourself, how many times did God have to endure me making the same mistakes over and over and over again? Patience can be simple if we are willing to look at other people the way God sees us. It's amazing how many stupid, idiotic things I've done in my life, how many times I hurt and uh, abused and uh, made fun of and pushed down other people, and yet God was still there, and he still forgave me, and he was still working on my heart, and he was still softening me, and he still brought me into his kingdom. If we can look at other people the way God looks at us, oh, that softens our heart. Oh, that brings us closer to them. And it gives us patience to endure with love because we know that the end goal isn't that Joe figures it out. The end goal is that we reflect represent and reveal God's presence to this world. And he's given us a path to do it. Let me pray for us. But my hope and my prayer is that we might leave here and sincerely seek to understand what our call is as Christ's church and where it begins. It begins with us giving up our bitterness, giving up our hurt, putting our needs aside, picking up the needs of others, looking at them the way God sees them, the way God sees us, and seeing what he does. I'll shut up. Let's pray.
Father, I just, I pray for your, just your tender prompting in our lives. Lord, I know that there are people here that are holding on to bitterness, that are holding on to hurt, that don't think that they can ever forgive. Lord, I pray that your spirit moves in their hearts. Just tenderize them. Lord, we just ask for simple steps forward. Lord, if, if we're at a place where we don't think that we can even talk to the person that we are hurt by, Lord, I just pray that you start tenderizing our hearts. Lord, if we're at a place of conviction that we know in order to move forward in relationship with you, in order for the church to move forward to accomplish its call in the world, Lord, we need to go and we need to seek forgiveness and we need to be restored. Lord, I pray for those that you will give them boldness and encouragement. And Lord, for those of us here who are not holding bitterness, who have been forgiven, who have confessed our sins and laid them under the blood, Lord, let us be wary in knowing that it can happen again. We can fall back into a bitter heart. We can fall back into pride. We can fall back into all of those things. But God, help us to humbly come before you. Help us to seek humility for the sake of others. And Lord, help us to have the patience of someone who understands who other people are in light of how you view us. That you may glorify, be glorified, Father. Lord, and I also pray for us who may be see broken relationships. May we be patient and tender and confront those relationships in order to seek restoration and peace. That again, you might be proclaimed and glorified in this dark world, this world that so needs the presence of God. And I pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Montebello Church Sermons.